you know, the internet, gosh bless it, you can, you can learn a lot. And I, I had begun to be aware of the disease, but it's one of those things you think will never happen to you. It's, it's always something that's going to happen to someone else, particularly something as rare as this. You know, I can't win a... I haven't won a lottery for a parking spot at the train station, and somehow I find myself winning this lottery. This is When I Die, Let Me Live. You know, if I'm, if I'm gonna die, I wanna still be me. A podcast about how each of us chooses to deal with death. Or not deal with it. And when it comes, can we ever be prepared? Wall Street's Honest Man. That's how Forbes magazine described Jay Fishman back in 2011. He was the CEO of Travelers Insurance, one of the few Fortune 30 companies that managed to survive the crash of 2008 unscathed. Jay was a straight talker with sound morals. At one point, he gave up a big job opportunity at Citigroup, a job that many people would dream of. Instead, he found his way to the insurance world. His roots were in New York, Wall Street, deals. He was really good at it, and that's where he saw his future. This is Brian McLean talking about Jay. Brian is the current president of Travelers and a close friend of Jay's. But coming to Travelers felt different. He'd seen and sometimes been a part of organizations where all too often one success was built on another's failures. At Travelers, he began to see a culture where there could be a real passion and a sense of purpose, but with a focus on shared success. Jay had modest beginnings. He was born in the Bronx to first-generation American parents. His father owned a small printing business, and his mom was a homemaker. He and his sister were the first in their family to attend college. Jay led travelers the way he lived his life, with humility and optimism. As the CEO of an insurance company, helping the world prepare for catastrophe was Jay's business. He was a numbers guy, always thinking long-term about the big picture. I can't help but think that his many years of experience in managing risk helped Jay cope with a devastating turn in his health. At the age of 61, Jay was diagnosed with ALS. The, the month before I had the diagnosis, I, I thought I was just one of the most fortunate, blessed people like in the universe. And this didn't change that view. It didn't for me. It didn't change that view. I, this is how my life is going to end. It, it wasn't going to be what my life was. This is When I Die, Let Me Live, and I'm your host, Lauren Kelly. Today's show is about a life interrupted. When illness comes to us when we least expect it, how do we adjust? How do we rewrite our life stories when illness never stops to wait? Facing a serious illness also sometimes presents us with important decisions that need to be made. In this episode, 
we hear about a medical decision that Jay dealt with, the most difficult kind you can imagine, the life or death kind. And this show attempts to unpack that decision. But before we can even get to what that decision was, we have to have a conversation. We have to pause and take a step back. What are the things that are most important to us when time grows short? What are our goals? What do we believe in and what do we hope to achieve? These are questions that can't go unanswered as we face serious illness. And Jay teaches us that. This show is in two parts. In part one, Jay gives a glimpse into his life with ALS. I want you to get to know him. Even in our short interview, I think you can hear and admire Jay's courage, his composure, and his willingness to look deeply into the unknown. In part two, we go there with him. Jay lets us in as we talk through one of the toughest decisions of his life. Shortly after we recorded the interview you're about to hear, Jay died unexpectedly. In part two, we'll get into the circumstances of how and when that happened. When we met, neither Jay nor I knew that there would be so little time left. This show is dedicated in his memory. Are you looking at a photo somewhere? I am. I this am. one right here? behind my phone there. Oh my goodness. my, well, now almost three-year-old uh, granddaughter Caroline, who is uh, just as sweet as she looks. <laughs> she, she is. Jay was a patient at the University of Pennsylvania, which is where I go to medical school. I was lucky enough to get the introduction to him through one of my mentors, Dr. John Hansen Flashen, who happened to be Jay's lung doctor. Jay was eager to talk with me for the podcast, and he invited me to visit him at Travelers. His Midtown Manhattan office was just what I expected from Wall Street's honest man. Stately, yet minimally adorned and filled with pictures of his family. Jay was in a motorized wheelchair and was using an external breathing machine, yet he still managed to come to work every day. He was no longer the CEO at Travelers, but was now serving in the role of executive chairman. I was its CEO oh, for about 15 years and uh, stepped down from that position in December of 2015 uh, as, uh, as my amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS progressed to the point where it was time to make that change. Jay didn't linger there very long about the big transition in his role at Travelers. He wanted to tell me his story, how grateful he was for all the time well spent throughout his career. Uh, started off as an accountant. Uh, sort of one thing simply led to another. And I found myself in the late 80s, early 90s, working with Sandy Weil and Jamie Dimon, a group of people who were, who were building what would eventually become Citigroup. And that opened up a tremendous opportunity, any number of opportunities for me, fortunate to be at the right place at the right time. Along the way, uh, I married my childhood sweetheart. Within the first five minutes of meeting Jay, I had already heard his life narrative, rendered in the past tense as if he were looking back at it. It was clear to me that Jay had been thinking a lot about the meaning of his life since his ALS diagnosis. If it's okay with you, yeah. I'm going to ask a question about 
your ALS, if you can tell me a little bit about how you learned that you had ALS. You know, I, I so I've had a, a, a chronically bad back for, for many years, and actually in 2004 had a, a necessary cervical laminectomy uh, to relieve uh, spinal compression. And so for a while, the symptoms were, I would say, masquerading, beginning to have sort of weakness, uh, core weakness, abdominal weakness. Never quite sure how exactly to, to, to call it, but a little bit more trouble standing up straight. My body would tend to kind of lean to the right. I again, thought it was my back. I did epidural. Like many others with ALS, Jay had a long and windy road to his final diagnosis, since the disease is so rare and subtle at first. When he received the bad news, it couldn't have been more of a shock. So the neurologist you know, I give the report to now, and this, this just looks at it, my wife and I standing in a hallway, and he says, this is ALS. And I said, well, the initial report that I had, the verbal report, was that it looked okay. He said, not, not okay. And that was it. He said, I have other patients. I got to go. That was, that was how I, that was the sort of initial learning moment for me. Now, it got better from there, but that, that afternoon was a, was a difficult one because we had, you know, at that point we were at the mercy of what we could research ourselves on the internet. Jay isn't alone in his awful experience of being diagnosed. He told me that a lot of the other ALS patients he had met had similar encounters with their doctors. You might expect greater sensitivity among doctors who deal with serious illness, but that's not always the case. Sometimes the disease specialists become so engrossed in the biology and treatment of the disease that they lose sight of the patient's experience. Like Jay, many patients take to the internet to find communities of support. ALS has an especially strong online community, which has received a lot of media attention in recent years with the Ice Bucket Challenge. I'm here to join the people bringing attention to Lou Gehrig's disease by taking the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. Oh, man, that's cold! I nominate Cara Delevingne, Suki Waterhouse. ALS is a disease of the nerves and spinal cord that starts slowly and involves progressive loss of muscle function throughout the body. This becomes life-threatening when the muscles that control breathing are affected. On the internet, a lot of the information is tough to read. Less than 20% of patients survive five years out from their diagnosis. They did uh, three days worth of testing and at the close, the closing, um, came in with almost like eight or nine people. And I looked over at my wife and I said, we're screwed. She looked at me and I said, it doesn't take eight people to give you good news. At that point, our heads were both spinning. And, um, you know, I needed, a, I needed a gin and tonic. Jay had a big smile on his face when he told me that a cocktail had become a part of his daily ritual since being diagnosed. He seemed to have a healthy sense of humor about it all. Somehow, he was remarkably calm and level-headed in the face of his illness. I, I quickly got that I, I had a finite, I always had a finite amount of time. Nobody gets out alive. But I had the blessing of knowing that I was now on the clock. 
I didn't know, still don't know how much time is left, but how I was going to use that time. The only thing that I could control, the only thing, was how I was going to react. You could either stay engaged or stay in bed. <laughs> That's a fate worse than death for me. There's a bunch of things I had to get over very quickly. I had to get over all the stuff that 63 years of life give you and say, none of it matters anymore now. I've got a wholly different purpose and a wholly different focus. A lot changed for Jay after he was diagnosed. He had to start using a cane and eventually progressed to the point of needing a wheelchair. Jay's wife, Randy, told me that she and Jay were in the lobby of a building early in the course of his disease when he first started using the cane. Someone turned to Jay and said jokingly, where are your tap shoes? These small moments of insensitivity throughout the day can be devastating, and they add up, especially as the body continues its relentless decline. So the initial muscle groups that were affected were abdominal, uh, intercostal, my core. I said I couldn't do one sit-up. So notwithstanding the fact that I weigh actually less than when I was first diagnosed. My waist is uh, up by eight inches. Uh, there's no muscle holding everything in together, so everything just kind of hangs out. I, you know, the, the day came a while ago now where I couldn't comb my own hair anymore, and so, all right, someone else does. Had to get through all that crap if you're, if you're gonna find a way to be at peace with it all, if you let, I let, the fact that I'm, I've gotta wear sweatpants half the time affect the way I think about my life, no good, no good. I got through that very, very quickly. Um, vanity was a, you have to just abandon it, you can't. And, and otherwise you'll, you'll sit by yourself, uh, you know, in, in your house, in your apartment, alone. And the only thing worse than going through this disease is going through it alone. The expression, death by a thousand cuts, that phrase should be reserved for ALS. I'm in my last year of medical school now and only beginning to wrap my head around how I'm going to talk with my patients about the difficult stuff, like tough diagnoses or when there aren't good treatment options. Sometimes, the sadness and the enormity of illness are more than any of us can bear. There's no time we feel this more than when we have to give our patients bad news. It's hard to be the patient, but it's also really hard to be the doctor. And some are good at conveying a, a very difficult diagnosis like that, and some not so good. God bless them. They. You know, you need them, that's what they do. Fortunately, after Jay's initial experience with diagnosis, he met several other doctors he connected really well with. My job at some point became, in effect, helping the doctor do, do his job. And it was, Doc, listen, I know, I know what I got. I understand the implication. Now help me make the best I can of the time I have. 
I was, that was my goal. How can I help my physician take good care of me? The easier and more approachable I was, the better it would be in effect for me and for the doc also. Jay's perspective to work collaboratively with his doctors would soon become critical. As his disease progressed, he began to face some incredibly difficult decisions, making it all the more important to partner with his doctor. I particularly enjoy engagements where the patient brings a sensitivity of me and my job into that partnership. This is Dr. John Hansenflaschen, Jay's pulmonologist and my own friend and mentor while I've been in medical school. Jay was looking for a partnership with his doctor and Dr. Hansenflaschen gladly rose to that occasion. He's watching out for me at the same time I'm watching out for him or her. Jay epitomized that kind of patient for me. I talked with Dr. Hansenflaschen a couple months after Jay died. It was the first time I had seen him since Jay passed away, and it felt like we both just really wanted to talk about Jay, who he was, and how we remembered him. I actually would love to play some of Jay's voice for you. Because there's parts of the interview that he and I had where um, he talks about you. And so, so I brought headphones for you. I sat with Dr. Hansen Flashen in his hospital office while we huddled around my computer, listening to Jay's tapes. Funny, I, I kid him all the time. I say to him, you know, John, I think you're a fake. He looks at me and, what do you mean? I said, you got a stethoscope around your neck. You're my pulmonary doc. You've never so much as listened to my lungs. You're not really a doc. And he laughs and he says, <laughs> I listen to your lungs. I just don't need the stethoscope to do it, which I, I thought was actually very... Dr. Hansen Flashen is a big, burly guy with rosy cheeks and a soft voice. He's the kind of person you'd need a hug from when the world gets too scary. I watched him while we listened to Jay, and I realized what they must have meant to each other. I was learning as much, if not more, from him as I was able to give in return. I think that I would help like to think that we became very good friends. Jay first met Dr. Hansen Flaschen when his ALS started to limit his ability to breathe. Since Dr. Hansen Flaschen is a lung expert, he wanted to help Jay get the most out of his lungs for as long as they'd last. But in their first appointment together, Jay came right out with the biggest question on his mind. So one of the issues, amongst the issues that you face in this disease, this, some of this stuff is easy. Do I put in a feeding tube or not, and when do I do it? But the real $64,000 question is, do I do, I do a tracheostomy and, and continue on uh, with invasive ventilation? I use non-invasive ventilation most of the time now, but that's different. This is a whole different deal. For patients who need long-term support with breathing, doctors start talking about tracheostomies or trachs for short. They involve creating a small surgical hole in the throat. A tube then connects the hole to a ventilator machine. For someone with ALS, trachs don't stop the progression of the disease, but they can help buy some extra time. Dr. Hansen Flaschen reiterated how important the trach decision is for ALS patients. Discussion of whether or not to undergo tracheostomy is fundamental to advanced decision-making for patients with ALS. Under good care, just about everybody 
who has a disease faces a conversation about that. Across medicine, we use them for all kinds of purposes, but only a minority of people with ALS choose a tracheostomy. Most people, perhaps with some guidance and advice or bias from their caregivers, choose not to have a tracheostomy. Getting a trach isn't a decision to be taken lightly. Life changes in major ways with a trach, and they can be a real source of distress for patients and their families. Jay and his wife, Randy, initially disagreed about getting a trach, and this came up in their very first appointment with Dr. Hansenflaschen. But Dr. Hansenflaschen didn't want to even go there, yet. He assured Jay and Randy that there was much to be discussed before talking about a trach. First, they needed to talk about Jay's broader goals, what his hopes were. John Hansenflaschen at Penn was just amazingly helpful to me in that whole discussion. We, we first went to see him when Randy and I, my wife and I, were in disagreement about tracheostomy. And he said, look, don't make that the decision point. What are the things you want to do with the time you have left? And if you need more time, and the tracheostomy is a way to do that, to give you more time, then you go ahead and you do it. Dr. Hansenflaschen basically told Jay and Randy he didn't want to talk about the trach. It must have been frustrating for Jay, who came to talk with him specifically about that. It'd be like going to an oncologist to talk about chemo and then not talking at all about the chemo. But this is what needs to happen. We can't just jump into these decisions without taking a big step back and talking about what our goals are. This has been a lesson for me as a medical trainee. I picked up some important tools from Dr. Hansenflaschen, and I think his advice can serve every doctor out there. What do you think it is about you that, that allows these, these topics to come very naturally? Perhaps a soft, gentle voice, a comfort with silence, and an expressive face, and uh, my willingness to run way beyond time. It's very, very hard to get in and to see me. And even on the day you finally get into my office, it may be 30 minutes, an hour and a half, two hour delay before I see you. But once people are in the room with me, I have a commitment to give them as much time as I think would be valuable and fruitful on that day. This is the sort of thing that just can't be rushed. Dr. Hansen Flashen recognizes that it takes time and patience to talk with people about their goals and values, even in the face of a medical system that makes it so hard to do just that. He asks things like, what are you hoping for? What are your biggest fears? He wants to know about people's priorities when he asks things like, what does your job mean to you? And what would it mean for you to not be able to walk or talk? It's these conversations that should shape our medical decisions. John, who, who really got me focused on closure, he would say, what are the things you want to do? And, and I, by that, I don't mean where do you want to travel or what vacation spots. That, that wasn't what he was challenging. 
when, when the time is done and you look back, have you done what you thought was important? Have you done what you really wanted to do? Which, of course, go, well, what do I want to do? Jay's conversations with Dr. Hansen Flashen led him to some important soul-searching. He started to reflect on the meaning of his life and the things that he values most. I think about my life now in reflection with sort of three orbits. Friends and family. Am I saying the things to my kids, my friends, my wife that I want to say such that they will remember? They'll have a fullness of memory. It, it's the fullness of it, right? It's the, you can, everybody makes mistakes, but person of good heart. And I wanted my kids to know how I feel about that now. A, how much I respect and admire all of them. The, the second orbit has been business and successfully affecting a transition, conveying leadership to the next generation, doing so in a way that met my own standards and investor standards. And then the third is an ALS legacy. I got involved in more than a couple of projects. We have given uh, meaningful resources ourselves. We have raised enormous, lots of money and very focused, very targeted projects that are either research-driven in the hands of people who at least think about the disease substantive way, but just as important, patient care, which doesn't get nearly the attention that research does. Jay was handling his illness with such remarkable poise. I asked Dr. Hansen Flashen if he felt these conversations were easier for Jay. Easier for him than for many other people. My part of it was only a small fraction of his thinking and his preparation. And in some way, I was offering some guidance and direction of how to think about it, how to think about something that was already very much on his mind. Some people think they'll hurt a patient by bringing up the topic of preparing for the end of life. And even if my opening that conversation produces a flood of tears, people are grateful that I did so. Part of the challenge and failure in medicine is that a lot of people, doctors and patients alike, are afraid to talk about serious illness and the way it impacts our lives. But Jay knew he needed to face his mortality to make the most of the time that he had left. We're all on the clock, every one of us. I've had the good fortune of knowing that I'm on the clock and therefore making active decisions with what I want to do with it. And I, and while this isn't a disease you'd wish on your worst enemy, the ability to know, to really understand the time grows short. Maybe it grows precious, but at least it grows short. Gives you the ability to therefore become active. How am I going to spend it? What am I going to do? What am I going to focus on? And that's been good for me. Jay also started to focus on the things that made his life worth living. Those things that he still had control over that his disease would eventually begin to strip away. Look, I'm still speaking. I may not be in another two months, but I'm still speaking. I'm still eating. Um, I'm still here at work. Last summer, my wife and I and friends went on a safari to South Africa, something my wife had always wanted to do. And it took a lot of help and a lot of people and a lot of energy. But we went. Jay found himself coming to terms with the way his illness was limiting his life. And his wife, Randy, was too. She told me that this was a slow and difficult process for them both. 
It broke Randy's heart to watch as her husband slowly required more and more help to do the simplest things. Jay himself was sometimes reticent about trying new things that would require a lot of assistance from other people. He didn't want to inconvenience the people around him. Randy told me that it wasn't until the safari trip to Africa that he gained the confidence to try more things. The safari trip was a gift to Randy. Jay knew she had always wanted to go. Being there on the trip was validating for Jay. He saw that his friends and his family were happy to be with him, even when and if it took more effort. That's when he realized that he could push beyond his limitations by letting himself rely more on others. I'm, again, blessed that I've got, frankly, the resources to be able to continue a purposeful life. Most people are not that fortunate because the insurance uh, dynamic of this disease is is, uh, inexcusable, really. I've got the resources to be able to do it. And the mindset that has allowed me not to not to dwell on this as misfortune. It's unfortunate, it's not misfortune. So that's a bit of a distinction I make. Even though Jay relied on a lot of people near the end of his life, he knew that there were limits too. Limits not only on the time he had left, but also limits on what he was comfortable putting his family through. I don't want to be a burden. I don't mean a physical burden. I don't want to be an emotional burden on anybody. And uh, and I have no really unfinished business. I don't. I don't. I'm, I've been very mindful about concluding my business in the broadest sense. It brings a sense of satisfaction to the time I'm spending. You can get... You can get all caught up in woe is me, no question about it. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't because I'm busy. I got things to do and things I want to accomplish. There's no woe here. (laughs) Jay's disease was progressive. Even though his optimism never waned, he still had to wrangle with the tough medical decisions that lied ahead, like whether or not to get a tracheostomy. So, how do you transition from knowing what's important to actually making medical decisions? Jay had begun to lay the groundwork for his decisions by defining those things important to him, like emphasizing quality of time over quantity and never becoming too great an emotional burden on his family. Meanwhile, Jay was quickly losing the ability to breathe on his own. We never want to imagine ourselves in this type of situation. But the reality is that someday, each of us or someone we love will have to make a decision like this. And when we do, what might we value? What would I value? Join us for the second episode where we take up these questions. Thanks for listening to the first episode of When I Die, Let Me Live, 
a show where we have honest conversations about what happens to our bodies when we're sick. We talk about what we hope for and what happens when we have to confront the worst-case scenarios. We want to hear from you, our listeners. What was a difficult decision you or someone you love had to make? How did you find the strength to make the choice you did? Send us your contributions by phone or on our website at whenidieletmelive.com. During future episodes, we'll share contributions from our listeners. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook at WIDLML. Special thanks to our sponsor, the Fostering Improvement in End-of-Life Decision Science Program at the University of Pennsylvania. The FIELDS program is dedicated to understanding and improving upon the ways in which end-of-life decisions are made. This episode was produced by Lauren Kelly and edited by Lauren Kelly and Aaron Shapiro. 